This morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I invite your thoughtful attention to the reading of God's Word. I'm going to try to use this this morning. There we go. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we were healed. And we'll read again verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. The title of my lesson this morning is this, Because He Bore a Cross, I Will Wear a Crown. This topic, I think, capsulates everything that is the center and substance of New Testament Christianity. There are two extremes in our society, and I think in our fellowship as well, regarding the subject. On the one hand, the cross of Christ is too familiar to us. All our lives we've heard about and we've talked about the cross. We accept it as without thought, much as we accept water without thought, much as we breathe air without thought. It is embraced without inquiry or cost. On the other hand, it is rejected altogether as being something of no value, a mere sentimentality. And this is becoming increasingly the case in our society. Also, even in our preaching, little time is given to the subject of the cross. Thankfully, that is not the case at this congregation. But we think everybody has a sufficient grasp of the subject. And so we hurry on to the conditions of salvation, and we spend most of our time talking about the conditions of salvation. Consequently, we know more about the conditions than we do the cross. 
And no doubt there are some who have been baptized who have never been converted. Because you see, baptism has no meaning, no efficacy whatsoever if it is not an expression of trust or reliance upon Christ and what he did for us at Calvary to take care of our sin problem. One thing is certain. At the heart of Christianity stands a cross. And when Christianity loses touch with the cross, it dies. When it embraces the cross, it lives. The story of the cross is the only power that can break sinful hearts and restore broken lives. But why is there a cross in Christianity? Why was a cross necessary? The Bible makes it clear that the cross was necessary because man had sinned and was under the condemnation of a just and holy God. I know this this answer is not complimentary to us, but it's the truth. Our society more and more denies the reality of sin. In fact, I wonder sometimes what, if anything, is considered sin anymore. When you can kill unborn children, now in some places abort them at the time of delivery. When uh, individuals of the same sex are allowed to marry and when homosexuality is upheld and all manner of crimes and attitudes are excused as illnesses or as differences in the very various aspects of our society. I think the words of Isaiah certainly describe our time. Woe unto them that call evil good, and uh, that put darkness for light, and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweetness, and sweetness for bitter. Effects do not occur apart from causes. How do you explain the miseries of mankind? You know, society certainly hasn't gotten better as the years have come and gone. Why do you, how do you account for so much misery, so many problems in our world? Do they come from that which is good? Jesus said that a good tree cannot bring forth a good fruit, that a good free tree does not bring forth evil fruit. And so if sin is not real, then the miseries of man are not real. And there's no difference between good and evil. Sin is real. And sin occasioned the cross. But what is sin? The Apostle John gets right to the heart of the matter when he talks about it. In uh, 1 John 3 and verse 8, he says, Whosoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. In verse 6, he said, No one who keeps on sinning, has either seen him or known him. So sin, John says, is the manifestation of Satan in our lives and the absence of God. Now, of course, the writer is talking here about those who live in the continual practice of sin and whose sins have not been covered by the blood of Christ. But in verse 4, he says that sin is lawlessness. Actually, What he says is, everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. So sin is more than 
doing what God tells us not to do and not doing what God tells us to do, sin is actually opposition to God himself. To use words or a phrase that we might understand better, sinner is a criminal before God. You see, sin offends God personally. This is true because of his nature. The Bible tells us that God is a holy God. And the word from which we get the word holy or holiness means that which is separated. And the Bible tells us that God is most holy. In fact, he's described by Isaiah and in the book of Revelation. He's described in the superlative. He said it's, They both tell us that God is a holy, holy, holy God. In other words, he's apart from, he's other than every other being in his infinite perfections and attributes. He's wholly other. The psalmist says that righteousness and judgment are the foundations of his throne. And wrath is a part of God's nature as well. Paul says in Ephesians 5 and verse 6 that because of sinful living, the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. So sin offends God because of his nature. When you think about the nature of God, we must understand that God is limited in his deity. Writer of the book of Titus and the book of Hebrews tells us, for example, that, that there are some things God cannot do. He cannot, for example, lie. And because of his nature... He cannot tolerate sin. He cannot disregard the reality of sin. In James 1 and verse 13, we learn something about the nature of God. The writer said, Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God, because God cannot be tempted. That's because of his nature. Neither tempts he any man. And so, that's why sin removes us from the presence of God. It's because of his nature, because of his just and holy nature, he cannot countenance sin. For example, when Adam and Eve sinned, they created for God a a divine dilemma. On the one hand, he loved them and wanted to continue in the relationship that he had with them in the garden that was described by the expression when the voice of God came walking in the cool of the evening in the garden. God had this continuing relationship with them that that he enjoyed and that no doubt they enjoyed. He wanted to continue that with them. But because of their sin, because of his just and holy nature, he could not allow them to remain in the garden. They had to be driven from the garden. uh, But because he loved them, as he loves you and me, he immediately set out to initiate the plan which he had laid out before the foundation of the world. A plan to punish sin, to remove guilt, and to make it possible for man to be with him eternally in heaven. That plan is the death of Christ. The the death of Christ on the cross was and is God's plan for the redemption of sinful man. Uh, It's a way of saving man that, that... that does not compromise God's just and holy nature. Because of the cross, 
God's wrath against sin and his love for sinners are compatible. In Romans chapter 5, in verse 8, Paul talks about the matchless love of God for mankind. And then in verse 9, he talks about them being delivered from wrath. I don't have to tell you this morning, I'm sure that every person in this audience has broken the law of God, is guilty of sin, for all of sin, Paul said in Romans 3. And because of this, we, we deserve to suffer spiritual death, eternal separation from God. Paul says this in Romans 6 and verse 23 from one place, the wages of sin is death. It's not like we sometimes think about it. God's nature is such and sin is such that the first time after reaching the age of accountability, the first time that we commit sin, we deserve to suffer eternal death. But God sent Jesus as a substitute for us to take our place as it were. And that's what we read in First Peter, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. In Ephesians 5 and verse 2, Paul said this. He said, Christ gave himself up for us, a, an offering and a sacrifice to God for an odor of a sweet spell. Notice what he said. He said that Christ gave himself up for us to God. And then notice that he also said that his offering, his sacrifice, satisfied God's uh, justice against sin. For he said, it was received as an odor of a good smell by God. Then in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, Paul summarizes all of this when he said that God has justified us freely by the grace of God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, that he might himself be just and the justifier of, uh, of, the one, of ones who believe in Jesus Christ. God has justified us freely. That word justified means not only forgiven, but treated as though we had never sinned. And he was able to do that because of the sacrifice of Christ, because that the son was willing to give himself as a propitiation for our sins. And that on our part, we must believe through faith, he said, in the blood. Notice, through faith in his blood. Not through faith in faith, repentance, and baptism. All those things have their place. They're important. They're even essential. But he says it's through faith in his blood blood, that he might be just on the one hand and at the same time the justifier of sinful men. So God did this for us to take care of our sin problem and to maintain his holy nature. Some have suggested that God could have and perhaps should have saved man in some other way. But how little we know, really know about the cross. How little we understand the costs that were involved in covering our sin. Do you, do you not think that God loved his son at least as much as we love our sons? 
Do you not think that, that that's the case? Would it not have been an awful thing for God to have done if he could have saved his son in some other way? No, in the words of the old song, there's no other way but the cross. I don't think there's any way for you and me to fully comprehend the pain, the agony, and the shame of the cross. And because we don't understand, we don't fully appreciate what God has done for us at Golgotha. There are a number of occurrences prior to and during the crucifixion of Christ that indicate to me that Jesus had great dread of the cross. For example, at his transfiguration, we're told that he, that he talked with Elijah and Moses about his impending death. Apparently no one on earth, not even his closest disciples, would talk with him about it or, or were in a position to, to really talk with him about it. So God sent these individuals from paradise to talk with him and to, and to comfort him as this loomed before him. Then uh, when he assembled with his disciples in the upper room to observe the feast of the Passover for, uh, for the last time, he said to them with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So you see, his impending death was on his mind, even in that gathering in the upper room. The, the Lord's Supper, which he instituted on that occasion, um, foreshadowed his coming death and the shedding of his blood on the cross. And after eating the, the, the meal there in the upper room, they went out of the city to the Mount of Olives to a place called Gethsemane. And he told his uh, disciples, sit here and wait while I go yonder and pray. He took with him Peter, James, and John a little farther into the into the uh, garden. And he said to them that he said that he had, he began to feel, the Bible says he began to feel sorrowful and trouble. And he said to them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. And then he went a little farther into the garden himself and fell on his face. And he prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Matthew 26 and 39. Luke tells us in chapter 22 that an angel appeared to him from heaven to strengthen him. But even with the angel being there, we're told that he was in great agony and he prayed even more earnestly. And the sweat became as great drops of blood as they fell from his face to the ground. He arose and went back to his disciples, perhaps seeking comfort and consolation. But, and he said to Peter, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And uh, then he went away again and he prayed a similar prayer. He said, Father, if, if this cup cannot pass, lest I drink it, thy will be done. Again, he went back to his disciples and found them asleep again. And he went the third time and prayed the same words. Without question, Jesus dreaded the cross. But why? Was his dread and fear of the cross because of the physical pain that he would suffer there? 
If that's the case, then how do you explain the death of Stephen? Luke tells us in Acts 7 that Stephen, when he was stoned, it says they stoned Stephen calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen did not ask uh, to be spared that, that suffering. He did not imply that God had forsaken him. Was Stephen more courageous than Jesus? Of course not. But Stephen did not experience what Jesus experienced. Why should Jesus have such fear of physical pain and death? Uh, it was going to last only six hours. I've known of people, and perhaps you have too, who have suffered much longer. I've known of people who have suffered for months uh, with some kind of incurable disease or be because of some excruciating pain. I'm not wanting to be irreverent, but I'm simply asking, was the physical pain that loomed before him with the crucifixion on the cross, was that the reason for his dread? I don't believe it was. I think the great fear and dread that Jesus felt before his death on the cross was the fear and dread of a spiritual paradox beyond human comprehension. Jesus said, you remember, we read earlier, that, uh, that Christ bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And uh, in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, Paul said, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. On the cross, somehow, in some way, Christ was made sin for us. These are the words of the Apostle Paul in this passage. I know that many say that Paul was simply saying that Christ was made an offering for us. And certainly, Jesus was an offering, did uh, give himself as an offering for our sins. And that may be all that Paul is saying. But I wonder if there's not more involved in it. Vincent, in his word studies of the New Testament Greek, commenting on this verse, said this. He said, Paul is not saying that God made him to be a sin offering. He's not saying that God made him to be a sinner. He's saying that God made him to be the representative of sin. That... Um, and he went on to say that all of the, that representatively, all the sins of all mankind collectively uh, fell upon him. Well, Robertson, in his word pictures of the New Testament Greek, reminds us that the words to be are not in the original. Paul didn't say he hath made him to be sin for us. He actually said he hath made him sin for us. And he also reminds us that the word sin is the substantive and not the verb in the sentence. And he continues by commenting that God treated as sin the one who knew no sin. And then he says, we may not dare to probe too far into the mystery of Christ's suffering on the cross. But the fact, this verse, throws light upon the tragic cry of Jesus just before he died. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I remember Brother Franklin Kemp saying on one occasion late in his life 
that the most difficult passage in all the Bible to him was Matthew 27 and 46, where Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He went on to say that I know the Bible teaches that the penalty of sin is spiritual death. And he went on to say that I know spiritual death means separation from God. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 and other passages. So he said perhaps what perhaps Jesus in some way or somehow was separated from the Father to pay the debt demanded by a just and holy God. All I know is this. Somehow, in some way, Jesus was forsaken by the Father while on the cross. The Father left. The Spirit left. Angels left. And for the first time in all of eternity, He was separated from the Father. I don't know how. I don't understand it. But I rejoice in the fact that God loved me that much. What pain. What agony. What love. What a Savior. What God. What a God. Someone asked, where was God when my baby died? Well, I asked, where was he when his own son died? No one was ever tried as God tried himself. How do you think God felt when Judas betrayed his son? How do you think God felt when Peter denied his son? How could God, with his great heart of love, turn away from his son when he cried, Why have you forsaken me? How could he keep from sending legions of angels to rescue him? I don't know how. But thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Like we sang a few moments ago, on the cross, Jesus paid the debt for our sin. And he paid all the debt. This is hard for us to accept. We'd like, to, we'd like for it to be a 50-50 proposition. But the cross is a reminder of the fact that man cannot save himself. Jesus paid it all. This is a challenge to our pride. We don't like to admit our sin, and we struggle with accepting God's grace. But all we can do is accept or reject God's grace. We cannot return the favor. We cannot pay Him back in any way. We're only the recipients of God's favor, which we do not deserve. Our pardon is based on atonement, not on attainment, and on believing and not in achieving. This is the gospel of the grace of God. Tell me the old, old story. Write on my heart every word. This is the story of what God has done to take care of your sin problem and of my sin problem. This is how much God loves you and me, enough to turn away from his own son on the cross when he cried out, why have you forsaken me? And the Bible teaches that faith 
is the appropriate response to God's grace. Paul said in Ephesians 2 and verse 8, By grace are you saved through faith. Faith is the appropriate response. And baptism is the expression of faith that God has designated for appropriating the merits of Jesus' death on the cross. Paul said in Romans 6 and verse 3, Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were buried with him in baptism that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we should rise to walk in newness of life. In Galatians 3 and verse 26, he said, You're all the children of God by faith. Many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. No amount of wealth you can accumulate. No amount of power you may amass. No amount of knowledge you may attain. Regardless of how good you might be, you cannot in any way put God in debt to you. You simply can trust in Christ and rely upon the merits of what he did for you at Calvary. And then validate that trust. Validate that faith by obedience to the commands of the gospel of Christ. God's love is unconditional. His salvation is not unconditional. It's for those who trust and obey. Jesus said in Mark 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Have you accepted Christ? Have you become his child? If not, what are you waiting for? Why not respond to this grace of God, to the love that he expressed for us in giving his only son? He did that for you. He did that for me. And then his blood will not only wash away all of the sins we have in the past, but as long as we're walking in the light, as long as we're endeavoring to live for him, his blood will keep us cleansed going forward each and every day. And we know that we can be with him. Won't you come, if you're here and subject in any way to the invitation of our Lord, please come while we stand and sing together.